Hello, everybody. Welcome to Outspoken. This is episode 98. And my name is Justin White. Still. Um, my guest this week, this time, this episode, is uh, my friend Debbie, who I know now because of my brother and my friend Aaron and her husband John who I also spoke to on this very same day and you might hear him chiming in from time to time Um, in fact I'm certain you will but this episode is for and about Debbie so let's get to it and I'll talk to you later So I should just talk, start talking about myself then? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll ask you questions as they arise, if you don't okay. mind. I, I tend to interject. Good. You know, if I get curious, I'm, and, and I always do, I'll just ask <laughs> more questions. But, okay. um, but yeah, I'd love to hear about, you know, your, your childhood or your, okay. your yeah. work life or your anything life. Okay, well, I was number, let's see, five and six of, five of six kids. Um, there's three girls, three boys. Um, wow. We grew up in um, rent. Well, we started off in Renton. My dad worked on the railroad after the service. He was in he wa- he was in um, World War II and the Korean War. And John, God, he's ruining it. Yeah. All right, stop. Go I, tell away. Him, my story. Go. Tell him I was I was about to ask if it was Renton, Washington. Yes, so it's Renton, I'm, Washington. Let him know I'm on it. In he's the, on it. So, jeez. So anyway, I was born in Renton, Washington. Okay. <laughs> so my dad worked on the railroad, and we and he started us all off uh, competitive roller skating, and so I started probably roller skating when I was about three years old. And all, all six of you did yeah. competitive roller skating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was that was that his passion or, yeah. or okay? Yeah. He, go ahead. That was his, that's something he did and he wanted all of you to do? Yes, exactly. My dad started us all doing that. And my mom roller skated a little bit, but it was really my dad that got us into it. And um, so we would, if he was gone on the railroad, working on the railroad, we would take the tax, a taxi or something, or a neighbor would take us to the roller skating rink in Renton. There used to be Renton Rollerland. Okay. So, um, that's where we had a big skating club there. And before it burnt down, but we all uh-huh. started skating there. We and um, how did it burn down? We I'm not sure. I can't remember the reason, but it. We remember seeing. It was. I think it was maybe when I was five or six, but and we it had a real organ, so and somebody played the organ and we skated to the organ music. That's cool. Yeah. So- was the organ there for hockey games, like for the boom, 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 boom? <laughs> that I don't know because um, I was—I think I was just too young. Yeah. To get uh, to know all about it, but I remember taking a group skating class, and then I had a teacher, um, Jackie Scott. She was my first skating teacher, and I remember I did freestyle and figures and dance. So wait, if it burnt down when you were five or something, mm-hmm. how how old were you when you started? Well, probably around three, three or four. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. And you, oh. and all your siblings before you had already done yep. the similar, like a similar track? Yep. Yep. We all started young and um, we have skating pictures and stuff of us in our skating costumes and partners. And oh, I want to see those sometime. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but um, yeah, we all started skating at a very long, I mean, early age. And then. My sister, Rachel, she's 18 months older than I am. She did really good in skating. She went to nationals and stuff. I went once. You have to you have to um, win at uh, first, second, or third in a regional championship to go to nationals. And so 
Okay. Right. And is, it, is this just, is it racing around a track? No. It's art skating, like okay, it's the like, Olympics. It's gotcha. Like, yeah, it's um, free, 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 um, free skating, freestyle skating, free dance. Um, figures is it's, you go around circles on the floor and you have to stay, keep your skate over the circle the, that's painted on the floor. So it's basically the same as ice skating in terms of the mm-hmm. skills and stuff. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Do you have to do like triple Lindy's and things like that? (laughs) Jump jump in the air? Well, that helped, but I never did that. I I mainly did um, figure skating and dance skating with a partner. We did dance with a partner. Cool. So, but then there's individual medals too. I mean, you can have, I got, I have a um, gold medal in American dance and a gold medal in international dance. Just uh, that's an individual achievement. So that's cool. Yeah. So, and my sister Rachel has a uh, one in a gold medal in American dance and figures. So nice. And when was the last time you were on roller skates? Oh, a few years ago. I still have my skates from a million years ago. <laughs> and that's cool. uh, they hurt my feet. I need yeah. but it, we still, it's kind of, it was kind of scary because, you know, you're afraid of, falling now back when you're young you're not afraid of falling or doing anything we just did it you just go <laughs> yeah but uh i was able to do some stuff but very very limited <laughs> so what what was your dad's i mean it seems like sort of a strange mm-hmm. uh pursuit for for a man of that era like was that was that a rant was roller skating mm-hmm. a big deal or was he just an exception to the yeah. I think he started when he was young. He grew up in, um, well, he was born in Tucson, Arizona, and they moved to Philadelphia where he met my mom. Um, and um, my mom was born and raised in Philadelphia. She had her dad had a um, clothing. Um, he was a tailor, but he had uh, like a sundries and stuff like that. Okay. Or, and they lived above it. My my dad, um she met my dad in um, a park where there was girls. There was about five girls, and three guys came over, and they said, no, we can't be with you unless you bring two more guys for the rest of the girls. And so they brought my dad, and the rest is history. <laughs> That's amazing. So, <laughs> but anyway, so I think he started at a young age when he was young skating, and he just loved it, so he got us all into it. And did, did all of you enjoy it or were some of you sort of resentful that you had to? No, I think everybody uh, liked it. But my sister, Rachel, and I, Abe, my brother, youngest brother, Abe, he was into speed skating but, and before he got, and he was very good, before he got sick. Uh, he got spinal meningitis when he was um, eight, nine, or 10 or something like that. Anyway, he had spinal meningitis and encephalitis, which screwed him up. Oh, I'm so, sorry to hear that. Yeah, but he's okay. He recovered and he's fine, but um, Rachel and I probably are the ones that um, <laughs> the dogs. So Rachel and I were the ones that really skated probably the longest in our lives. We I skated till I was about twenty one. She skated, and we both um, learned how to judge and did some judging. And um, Rachel judged some in the nationals competition, and um, she actually married a um, skating teacher from California. And, um, but we skated probably into our early twenties and then kind of had other things, families and yeah. Like so, but, nice. uh, but my dad, so, uh, my dad would be at work on the railroad and, um, we hardly saw him and he, and I kind of remember him a little bit when he wasn't hurt. So, so mm-hmm. what, what did he do on the railroad? He worked in the caboose, I believe, but I'm not sure. Sh- or engineer, but it, that's kind of fuzzy for me because I, I was so young. And then it, when after okay. he got hurt, which he got hurt on the railroad lifting heavy caskets. Oh, and, like um, hurt his back or something? Yeah, he hurt his back, and they back then in 1960 they didn't weren't really good at doing spinal cord injuries and things like that. So they did an operation to um, 
fix his back and they screwed up or something, we were told. And um, so it paralyzed him from the waist down, but he was still able to walk on crutches and drive a car and stuff like that. So the paralysis was gradual, I think, but he had this horrible pain in his legs for years and years. He felt that he said that it felt like they were on fire. And so he went through all sorts of um, pain medications and therapies, and he went to Palo Alto for pain, um, you know, rehab and all this stuff. And knew they tried experimental drugs on him one time, and it made him hallucinate, and it was, it was horrible. Wow. But yeah, and so we'd wait. And I think I slept. I didn't sleep real soundly. Rachel, Bobby, my sister Bobby, and the boys were downstairs, so he, they didn't hear, but... I would wake me up at night and hear him in pain and oh my god it was horrible yeah and that was so how old were you when that happened oh let's see so he it happened in 90 right after my brother abe was born 1961 six, 1960 1961 and um they had a, one operation even made his heart i mean they gave him too much um uh, anesthetic or something and his heart stopped so they had to do open heart surgery on him wow and Jesus. um all through his years, but he never, you know, he never complained about the pain. He never stopped him from doing stuff. He just, um, he just plowed on. I mean, he, even when he was sick, he had, well, let's see, he went, had kidney cancer. He had one kidney taken out. He had um, throat cancer and he couldn't communicate until they, and which really upset him until they gave him a, you know, one of those buzzers you put on your neck. Yeah. And he, talk and he was so happy i mean that was a godsend so he he had throat cancer kidney cancer um he was he had um he got bed sores and stuff like that and had to overcome some of that stuff but he and he had one of his legs amputated because bad circulation you know gangrene set in and so he, yeah. he and all, all of that is from the botched surgery like all, well, all that, those, just all like that, yeah he would have um and he is a smoker, but mm. uh, really he would have lasted. I mean, he died before, just before his 69th birthday. And I'm sure he would have lasted a lot longer if it wasn't for that being paralyzed. And yeah, but you know what? He, he just kept on going. I mean, he, he would, even if he was sick and then had a fever, well, he went, let's, let me tell you, he was into archery and Paralympics and he volunteered at the veterans hospital and so he had he was in wheelchair games and um, he was an archer, and so he was so good that um, they asked him to be one of the archery judges at the Olympics down in Los Angeles. Mm. And so my brother Abe, to, with my dad, drove down to L.A. to do the um, Olympics, and. Uh, he was sick on the way down and they ended up in San Francisco in a veterans hospital and they were going to admit him. And he told Abe, get the car ready. We're leaving. So they dashed out of the veterans hospital and Abe and him drove down to LA and he was sick. And by the time they were done with the uh, Olympics, he was so sick. Abe just drove him straight through to from LA to Seattle to get him into a hospital because he was just so sick with wow. um, probably from uh, a bed sore or something, but that's so what he had like a fever and, yeah. and, mm -hmm. and yes. And he never complained about it. He would just never. tough it out. Yeah. He would never complain. He never felt sorry for himself. Did it change his disposition at all? Like around the house? Did he feel, was he like resentful that he couldn't, Nope. work as much or no well, he just but he always had odd jobs he always worked my mom worked and he always worked at some sort of thing until he ended up in the hospital because he would have some sort of something going around with him yeah so he was amazing i mean he was an amazing person he would be at all of our skating meets he took us to skating he, he took us to the skating rink all the time for our lessons. He paid for lessons or he worked at the skating rink to make sure we had lessons. You know, each of us had uh, a, pro, um, a pro who, mm -hmm. a skating pro who would give us lessons. 
and we belonged to a skating club. And he took us to meets and drove us to nationals and he, but he, and he always was happy. I mean, he was always upbeat, never said a bad word about anybody or, you know, he was always positive with us. Even if we did bad, he would, you know, he, we'd always go over to him and he'd hug us and stuff and say, it's okay. You know, that's awesome. That's pretty rare for a a man of that age, I think. Yeah. And he was a big man too. And uh, he, he, he did all sorts of funny things too. I mean, he took advantage of his, he took it, he took advantage of his, <laughs> of his, uh, um, being paralyzed and stuff too. And, um, how he, so he, well, you know, he would get away with stuff he had. So he had a three wheeler motorcycle bike that <laughs> he was, he drove around and he, drove and parked on the sidewalk in front of one of our, um, it was called the Apogee Tavern that we'd meet at after skating and stuff. Mm-hmm. He drove, and my brother was in the police force uh, communications and somebody called in and said, Hey, there's somebody parked on the sidewalk here in the crutch. My dad's crutches were there, you know, uh-huh. they would say, oh, my brother said, Oh no, 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 that's just my dad. So don't worry about it. So he would, but he would, and he, walks through we were at a skating meet and we're standing at a hotel which had a restaurant and he would walk you know he he stole one of the glass pitchers from water pitchers and he just walked through the walked on this with his crutches you know through the lobby with this glass pitcher nobody paid him any mind you know you know he was taking advantage of that (laughs) but uh that's funny i have a feeling i'd probably do the same like well i got this going on so just yeah. leave me alone while I'm doing it. So what are you gonna do? I'm crippled. I'm right. a cripple. <laughs> and he know, you know, he was he was just a big kid. He and he also drag raced our family car. He would take the um the um the um the air filter off and do some other modifications and he drag raced. I mean and he's got tons of trophies for drag racing and what um, kind of car was it? Do oh, gosh, I don't even remember. Okay, but he would just soup it up for the races yeah. and then yeah. switch Put it back, back to yep. <laughs> family style. Yep, that's great. Yep. So, and then also, yeah, but he, but he was able to drive like that for a long time, and then eventually he had to get hand controls. But um, he uh, basically, yeah, he just uh, he loved drag racing. He'd go up all over over the place around Washington and drag race a family car. <laughs> We had trophies lined up a lot around there, our basement wall of his stuff, and yeah. And so one, t- my brother Abe said, we were we grew up. He, they raised us Jewish. My mom and dad were both um, born and raised Orthodox Judaism, and um, so when we went to Sunday school. Um, and my brother Abe, my dad was going to take Abe to Sunday school, but he said, "Well, what would you rather do, Abe?" Sunday school or drag racing? And so what do you think they did? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if only every kid was given a choice like I that. Oh, right. So, amazing. yeah. And um, my brother Abe has a lot of other stories too. And my dad used to, um, when he taught us how to drive, I think I mentioned this in a report, but he loves, you know, loved us to go fast. And so when he taught us to drive, if we weren't going, you know, going onto the freeway, we had to be up to freeway speed. We weren't going up. If we were, weren't going fast enough, getting onto the freeway, he would put his crutch over on the speed. Uh, <laughs> on the gas, gas pedal. pedal. Yeah. And make us go faster. And um, I know he did it to Rachel and I know he did it to Abe, but I can't remember him actually doing it to me because I think he knew I was uh, probably more scared. <laughs> okay. Fast. But, you know, we all, Rachel, even my sister wanted to do powder puff um, drag racing because of my dad, but she never did, but. She wanted to. So, yeah. But then my, my sister, Rachel, and I, we would go to the skating rink in Puyallup, and we lived in Kent, and we would race each other, do horrible <laughs> speeding and passing each other, and we'd race each other to the skating rink. So, yeah, there you go. So you had your own little family <laughs> drag race going on? Yeah. But, That's um, great. So, yeah. so did, you, did you, do you feel like everybody, like, it sounds like you adored your dad and, and did, did everyone, 
was he kind of like the star of the family that you know everyone yeah. for? Well, we all took care of him. You know, my mom worked during the days and um, to support us because dad didn't always have a uh, you know job. So mom worked eight hour days. And um, how was that for her? Was she? Well, you know, and she tried to take when well, she had to take care of dad too, but um, it was hard. I think she had she had well she had to take care of my dad or she had to work full time so she can get the health benefits to so that my dad would have health care. You know, right? Because he was in and out of the hospital all my all my life, really. You know, and was, uh, was she? Did that have an effect on her? I mean, I mean, it must have, but did it? Did you witness like a change in her demeanor or anything? Well, I, she was pretty stoic too. She hardly, you know, I never saw my mom cry and I've never seen her really. She would, she would blow up at us sometimes and she would, you know, she's just a little five, three little woman there. And she would yell at us. I'm going to beat you to a bloody pulp. You know, Jesus. Uh, I'm going to break every bone in your body. You know. she, would, she would say stuff like that? Yeah, she would say that too. <laughs> but it was just an empty threat? Or yeah. did she oh, actually? Yeah. But we, okay. we know, we knew she would, she knew business. She made, you know, that was, that meant, you know, that was at the end. She was of serious. Life. Yeah, she was serious. Or she'd come along and pinch your arm or some pinch your arm. But we never, we never, um, we never uh, got spanked or anything like that. My dad would yell at us and we hated that. So, you know, you did stuff. You you stayed good. You did good things, and you know, you didn't get out of line. Or uh, I never. I was always a good student. I mean, I didn't do great in school, but I didn't do bad in school. But I always, you know, knew this is what you do. You go to school. You come do homework. You go to the skating rink. You come home. You know, and that's it. We went. You know, we went to the skating rink seven days a week, pretty much. Wow. And uh, that was my first job. Is uh, at fifteen and a half. I worked at the skating rink in the in the snack bar, but um, yeah. Seems, so seems like a natural transition. You yeah, kind of live there anyway. Yeah, so that was that was my whole life, you know. And I did stuff in school, but I didn't. I wasn't really. I wasn't really into school activities or anything. One one of my teachers wanted me in high school wanted me to join the track because I, you know, because of skating, you know, I was good had endurance and stuff so i said no well i I can't do it because i have to do skating you know it's two inches yeah Yeah. so and i got a drag race on the weekend (laughs) on the weekend So and I think I remember you saying once that you you liked science and math. Yeah, that's my favorite subjects. Um, I wanted to be. Let's see. I first I wanted to be. I wanted to um, get into an anthropologist. I loved anthropology, and then I wanted to be in college. I wanted to be uh, get into government, mm. and then uh, is that because of what was going on probably, at the time? Probably, yeah. and. Um, I did in, um, I, I can't remember how old, uh, how old I was, but uh, during the Soviet Union times and, um, so Soviet Jewelry, 
yeah, they wouldn't let Jews get out of the Soviet Union. So I wrote a letter to my congressman, and I can't remember who it was at the time, to say, you know, you should put, you know, try to get these people out of the Soviet Union and stuff, blah, blah, blah. And I got some a letter back and, you know, that's about it. But I tried to help. <laughs> yeah. I know some uh, some Russian Jews who had to, they had to escape from Moscow uh, yeah. sort of secretly. They said they were going to, to Italy, which I guess was the main checkpoint. Mm-hmm. And they went to New York instead. Nice. <laughs> and never, never came back. <laughs> good. Well, that's a good thing too. You know, totally. but my, I think my mom, well, my dad's family are from Russia and they, I think my dad is first generation um, U.S. And my mom's family were from Romania and I think she is first generation also. But wow. she, her and her grandmother only spoke Yiddish to her. And so my mom and dad knew Yiddish words here and there, and they taught us some, you know, because mom wanted, you know, certain things like um, that she didn't want other people to know that what she was saying. Right. <laughs> secret you know, language. Yeah. She would tell, say, say words to us in Yiddish and stuff like Petsik and took us and, uh-huh. you know. <laughs> what, what was the first one? I know what took us is, but what was yeah, the first Petsik one? Petsik is the front. Petsik. Is the front? The front part, okay. Yeah. <laughs> good, good to know. Yeah, so now you know. <laughs> anyway. Well, no wonder your your parents were sort of stoic if they yeah. came from Russian and Romanian yeah, stock. Maybe so, maybe so. It's serious, serious living over there. You gotta, <laughs> you gotta just tough it out, or you're gonna get left behind. I know. I don't know. Yeah, and I don't. And we don't. We were born and raised in this area, Seattle area. So all of our families and. Philadelphia, Atlantic City, you know, mm-hmm. we, I never even knew my grandmother. Um, well, my mom's mom and dad and my dad's mom both died when they were like five or six years old. Mm. So um, um, uh, I never grew up with the grandparents in my life or cousins or anything like that. Um, we were always, you know, we were pretty secluded and, um, you know, n- nobody, none of our relatives really grew up around us. So we once in a while would meet up with my dad's brother, older brother, um, and we met him. But other than that, I have no, I know no of my, co- none of my cousins. Really? Uh, you don't even know that, like, you don't have any contact with them? None. Mm-mm. Wow. And there are, my mom has been back there. Uh, years ago um but uh you're close with your siblings still i'm close with my siblings yeah Mm -hmm. my brothers and sisters yeah one of my brothers passed away uh oh just oh right yeah just from just last march march 30th from ms and then one of my nephews my oldest brother's son passed away just um, last month uh, from heart attack heart failure heart attack or something that's you know that's the one i was yeah yeah I was trying to remember but but we are i think we're we are very close and i'm closest to my sister rachel because we're only 18 months apart and we grew up together yeah and um she's still uh, around seattle yeah, she's still yeah. There? we're all around cool yeah we're all still in this area and so we do stuff together sometimes but she's really like my best friend we grew up you know, going, doing things together, going, eventually when we were able, old enough, we went to skating meets on our own and it was just, we had so much fun, (laughs) but, um, yeah. So her and I are still pretty close. That's great. Yeah. And my brother Abe, he's living with us. So that's a good thing too. I'm glad he's with us. So cool. Yeah. Um, but okay. So we were talking about sort of science and math and your Mm -hmm. like, stuff you were interested in. Yeah. And then, you know what? And then in um, high school, I had took a photography class. This is where I got into photography. I, my dad, um, one Hanukkah, my dad got me a little camera and I took pictures and I thought, oh, this is fun. And then, so in high school, there came about a photography class. So I signed up for that and we had assignments and stuff. So, and, and then you learned how class. to do the developing process. Yeah. And processing and printing and stuff yes. like that. So my 
photography teacher said, hey, you should do this, you know, go into this profession. I said, oh, okay. So I checked it out. And he, I think he's the one that told me there was um, Seattle Central Community College had a photography program, two-year photography program. And so as soon as I graduated, I signed up for that. And they only took 25 students a year, so I had, was on a waiting list. And so in the meantime, I went to Green River Community College and got a two-year uh, associate degree there. And In then, something uh, else? Or in, yeah, well, okay. just in general studies, you know. Okay. And then... Um, I was ready to go after that. I was had um, signed up or applied to the UW to be going to teaching because I didn't know if, about the photography degree yet. And it, so I put my down payment to go into um, UW to get into a teaching um, program. And the photography thing came right up at the same time. So I said, eh, I'm going to photography. Nice. So, <laughs> so I got a student loan and went into the two did the two year photography program which we were, we used four by five view cameras the whole time and um, which was amazing and did lighting classes and portrait classes and architectural classes and all sorts of interesting things and we processed our own film and printed our own film and um, learned about the um, film you know how to, how it's made and why it response to light the way it does and everything so that's really cool yeah so after that um i didn't get into um i did work at sears portrait studio for a year which isn't real photography <laughs> but i thought it was you know getting adding to my career but, yeah did it sharpen <laughs> your skills at all or did it just well, like did- it, it, it did a little bit on framing and portraiture and you know, how to get kids' attention. Yeah, I was going to say to teach you how to deal with unruly kids. Yeah. That, that's kind of the main job. <laughs> yes, it did. But uh, so it was fun. But then I didn't pursue photography for a while. I got married to my first husband and had a son. And um, then when my son was about five or six, we got divorced. It was all me. And, um, you know, I just, I was, I think I was just too young to get married, but I, that was how I was raised. You grow up and you get married and you have children. Yep. So I had my son when I was 26, which was the best thing I ever did. And, um, uh, he's a wonderful kid with her. And now he has wonderful kids of his own, but so and anyway, uh huh. no, go ahead. Sorry. So I was going to say after he was about three, I started, um, shooting more stuff and getting my portfolio um, stocked with stuff. And so I applied to Boeing and I was hired at Boeing in 1986. And I started working in um, Color Lab, which Boeing had a huge Color Lab. They did prints and they had a copy camera and um, they did all sorts of different things. Cool. What was your job there? I did. I... um, stuck view foils into a machine that processed them and and then i plus i worked on a copy camera machine and also um they had these printers that were they called s printers where you put the negative in and it prints it makes a print and oh, it was cool. pretty tedious and, and what's the ca- the copy camera copy camera yeah we did you know we'd get artwork or something make a negative of it and then they could print it or okay all and, foils, you know, that's how they did their um, meetings was with view foils on a overhead projector, you know, so we did a lot of view foils and stuff. I don't think I've ever heard that word view foil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, you know, when people had meetings, they don't, didn't have computers back then. Right. Back then in my day, <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have computers. But when I was a glass. <laughs> so they had this overhead projector that they'd throw, a, you know, a view foil on with their whatever graph or you know someone would have to make these drawings and then we'd photograph them and shrink them up and put them on these eight by ten view foils but was it actual foil or was it like acetate or something yeah it was acetate it was like you know um slide you know but it was eight by ten slide you know okay yeah so i've just never heard that the foil part Mm -hmm. um so but so these are like mostly photographs of 
like drawings of of airplanes or drawings missiles or, or what like what was what airplane. were the main well i worked for commercial airplanes okay. so no military stuff no no military stuff that's good yeah and, and did they... you mm-hmm. sorry did you learn about things while you were looking at these things or was the job to like were you just yeah yeah it was like, pretty oh. tedious <laughs> you weren't you weren't able to like examine the drawings and learn like what boeing's mm-hmm. next airplane no. was no, not until I got in. So I was in the color lab for about a year. And then I, some, uh, a job came open in flight test. And that's where I transferred to flight test. So I was at Boeing for 28 years. I was in flight test for 27 of those years. And wow. stuff I've learned, oh my gosh. I, I mean, airplanes are just amazing things. I mean, I've been on uh, stall, stall testing and wind-up turns and... Uh, we also wind up turns. Yeah, you go. You, the plane just does a turn until it comes to a, st- you know, keeps turning, 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 and then it stall. Kind of does a stall, and then recovers, and that's what that is. <laughs> that's so, cool. Yeah, it was bad. I thought it was fun, but the less I knew about it, the better, because I didn't know want really want to know what was going on with the airplane. <laughs> Most of the tests, if I knew what was happening, I'd probably be scared out of my life. But um, well, it's kind of amazing that. People are so trusting in this this giant piece of metal that. Oh, I know. Somehow. Well, they should because you know what? When I was working there, uh, it was. I mean, they tested it for hours and hours and hours. I mean, I've also done so. We put cameras in a chase plane. We did a T. We have a T thirty eight, which is a little trainer, a uh, little fighter airplane looking. It looks like a little fighter airplane. You mm-hmm. see, sit tandem. We sat in the back. We had to wear a jumpsuit and helmet. And oxygen mask and all the whole bit tied to a parachute, you know. Wow. Friction seat. But anyway, so we do chase. When it, at the beginning of airport, airplane programs, they'd put the airplane through um, all sorts of rigorous testing, uh, stalls and things like that. Before anybody else could fly in, it was just pilot and co-pilot. On, makes on sense board. to me. And then, yeah, so we would do chase flights with that just to show um, the engineers what's actually happening with the airplane in flight. Um, our, a lot of our stuff was just secondary. I mean, they had, the airplanes had all sorts of instrument instrumentation on them. And we would also shoot stills of instrumentation locations all over the airplane. And they that would be telecommuted. <clears throat> they had telemetry stations, so they would. They had a flight pattern where they had to um, stay within a certain area, so that the telemetry could um, read all the instruments and stuff that were on the airplane. Okay. So, but we did chase as backup. You know, if anything um, happened, we can show what happened. So you like, would like fly around behind and on the sides of the yep. airplane, filming, yep. filming yep. things. Wow. Yeah. And during, they would do flutter testing, which is they kick the rudder and of the airplane, and everything would shake, and it would have to tamper out, temper out if it, you know, to make sure that the airplane can go through that right. type of condition. And that was, you know, pretty uh, interesting to shoot. Yeah, yeah. I bet. So, what, then, what about like uh, weather tests and like yeah, we did that hurricane too. winds and all that? Yeah, we went. I did. Um, I went to Iceland twice to do crosswind landings, thirty-five knot crosswind landings, thirty-five knots or better. Holy shit! Is that scary yeah. to be? In? I was on the ground. Well, I was on the ground shooting oh, okay. video of them landing. It was so it was thirty-five knot crosswind landing test. So, so uh, it's so that you have to just fight again. You're as the pilot's coming yeah. down. You have to just like yeah. fully turn to the into the wind. Mm-hmm keep it from yeah. tipping over well you know um we had to anchor our tripod down with weights and stuff so it wouldn't fly out or you know and you know how steady that's going to be yeah. if you're <laughs> shooting something and it's windy but um so did you so that was this in Reykjavik or did you yeah, go uh, yeah, Reykjavik did or, you go elsewhere in Iceland did you have time to travel we were, around oh yeah um we were well we the airports in Keflavik we stayed in Reykjavik and one, uh, we were there one Labor Day, and every we had they had a day off for everybody. So we took like a thirteen-hour road trip. So we just 
pile in, everybody piles into cars and we just we went and saw the glacier some glacier we were able to get out and just walk right up to this glacier and nice. then all these waterfalls and Golfos is a water huge waterfall that we went to see and I've seen pictures we went, of that one yeah it's beautiful did you yeah. see the northern lights while you were there or no. no if it was labor day i guess maybe it's not as common no and it was always you know either really you know wasn't clear i mean one year it snowed it kind of snowed and the ice it was just kind of sideways snow that we were shoot i didn't was out there shooting and, uh -huh. and um let's see i was in there so one year it was september and one i think one year it was in january or something but yeah did you it, get to did you interact with the people oh yeah very much mm -hmm. oh yeah it was like a big family because you did you know the same people you tested with everybody over and over and over again the same engineers i mean back then the engineers stayed there i mean everybody stayed there because we were going to get a pension you know people stayed mm -hmm. you know for pensions nowadays i think they they're getting rid of pensions and so the turnover of engineers and things are more frequent and so which is sad because you lose all this common knowledge you know so yeah. but when i was there everybody worked together every time and we knew our engineers and so the engineers were our customers and um we knew them you know it was like i said it was just a big family so yeah and we did um water spray tests and glass we were this is our triangle we glasgow montana because boeing owned um or they bought there's an old deserted um air air force base there in glasgow okay is so, there a big scottish settlement there that I, you know what that i don't know uh it's a small town with uh yeah and the crummiest of hotels oh my gosh <laughs> but um but boeing fixed up the base and some so we were able to some people stayed on the base and some people stayed in town, but <clears throat> the Air Force Base is like 17 miles away from the, uh, Glasgow City, so <clears throat> it was kind of a schlep. And we all the stuff that we ever did at Glasgow, I mean, we'd be there at the crack of dawn, and um, so. But um, we we did like um, one of the tests was water spray, and we'd have to um, they the. Um, mechanics and engineers would build a trough on the taxiway a long hundred i don't know how long 100 foot trough and Just full of water and and put it full of water and then the airplane would come around <clears throat> and we would videotape this they had cameras all over the place and um they'd put banami on the colored they banami is something you know as um soapy type the material that they used all the time and they I've put never uh, heard that word either. yeah they put dye in it the, some dye in it pink or something okay they wipe it all over the engine and the fuselage of the airplane then they'd run at different speeds the airplane to the trough and one of our camera positions was a head-on position so the faster they got the farther down we had to go because we didn't want to get run over right and the in the center, which I did a couple times, was had to have your tripod on wheels so you can quickly get off the taxiway before the airplane gets to you. But um, so that so it's coming straight at you and you're yeah. filming it. Yeah, and, we had to do that. Yeah, and then you know exactly what point you have to just start running. Okay. Yep, <laughs> that's amazing. As soon as the airplane gets to the trough, you run. <laughs>
about fire tests? Uh, yeah, we did smoke. Yes, yes, yes. We did. I was on many of smoke testing. So they would, like, if we were, say, a freighter or a 747, uh, we would take up the, take the airplane up and fly it around. And uh, we would have real tobacco. They'd, there was, um, this guy would load, it was had to be weighed so that every load was right, you know, the same. And he'd put this little machine, he'd light it up during flight uh, with a little torch he had and g- get the tobacco, you know, all lit up, put it in a machine. And the, this machine blew the smoke up and the flight deck would monitor and see how long it would take the flight deck to get the fire warning signal in the flight deck. Okay. So we did that all through the airplane, different stations, all through the airplane. And then also... Would you just be smelling like tobacco for days oh, after those tests? Yes. We'd smell horrible. I mean... I, it seems like the whole airplane, like all the upholstery and everything would just be uh, saturated with it. Well, well, they don't... In test airplanes, there's no interiors or anything like that. Oh. It's bare ribs. Do they add weight to... to replicate okay Mm -hmm. yes there's barrels of water and they can shift to uh, the water from barrel to barrel to to for different cg you know center of gravity yeah that's cool yeah so the only thing that was in these test airplanes were bare ribs of the airplane no linings whatsoever and rows and rows and rows of instrumentation racks for all the engineers to sit behind and and yeah and just like a little strip down the middle to walk on, yep. like a little yep. catwalk. Wow. Yep, exactly. That's cool. I've actually seen, I, I interviewed a guy who lives in an airplane, um, oh. a 727. Oh, wow. And, and he actually bought a 747 and had it moved to an island in Japan, which is oh, where, wow. he, where he wants to live. But he right now he lives outside of Portland. <laughs> and you can go visit him. I mean, he, he well, I don't know about during COVID, but... Mm-hmm. He would just let anybody, he he likes it if you check in first, but he basically is just there all the time and you can come in and walk through his <laughs> place. And um, so, but he replaced the whole floor with right. uh, plexiglass so that you yeah. could, you could see all the guts of the, oh. all the wiring and everything. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's what it looked like inside these test airplanes. There's no, there was no ceiling or anything, nothing. I mean, you That's can cool. see the cables running through the, yeah, the airplane. Well, and he's the one that told me that the airplanes are, you know, they're safe against hurricanes and fire yep. and all kinds of mm-hmm. other stuff. Yep. Totally waterproof, totally yep. air, air sealed. Yep, definitely. They definitely are. And we do, I mean, you, we, and I've been on some compression, you know, decompression type air flights, air, you know, flight testing that they make, they, you know, they take the cabin pressure up to 14,000 feet to make sure that all the um, smoke masks and all that, I mean, all the, you know, the, the safety features, yeah, they, that all, they all work. So if none of the mat, you know, if cer- certain areas, if the masks don't drop properly, then that's a ding and they have to go up and do it again. And so you just sit there, you know, everybody's sitting down and we have to video, we have our cameras rolling and they take the slowly take the air pressure to 14,000 cabin pressure to 14,000 feet. And then they all pop. And so then after that, we have to take stills of ones that didn't all the way extend or, you know, stuff like that. So we did used that to- mess with your ears. Did you? Yeah. Get- mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, it did. That and- seems like it would be dangerous for the, for the yeah. people. <laughs> did anyone lose hearing? Well, one flight, this was a secondary testing, you know, they put on a whole bunch of different tests on one flight. So, if your test is only five minutes of the flight, well, you're stuck there for hours and hours and hours right. anyway, for all the other testing. But they were doing something with the pressure and making it go up and down. And my ear, oh, my God, my ear started hurting. And so I tell the flight deck, they stopped the testing. And afterwards, I went to the, you know, the Boeing has a, a doctor and stuff on on site, actually, you know, you can, to get, they have a medical area. And so I went and had my ear checked because it just, oh my God, it just like felt like a needle was sticking in my eardrum. But yeah. That's but, the worst. I had that happen when I was a kid oh, and, it, and it never, 
Like I lost some hearing because of it. And it was just a normal flight. I don't know. I think I had a cold or something. Yeah, you shouldn't shouldn't fly when you have a cold. Yeah, it hurts like hell. Yeah, yeah. So and you have to sign away all your you know, do you have to sign disclaimers when you were doing these? Or is this part of the contract? Is like these are the risks you'll take? You everybody knew the risk. I mean, we had every every before every flight test we had a um uh you know, pre-test briefing, and we go th- over the test. We know exactly what's going to happen in the test. They ask if anybody has a cold that they shouldn't go, and the, they um, they have risk factors that they have to. You know, um, they every te- you know pre-test briefing has to have risk uh, um, assessment so that everybody knows what the risk is going in. Right. And so, and for high risk things they have minimum crew. So I've never been on a really, really, really high risk thing, but when they start screwing around with air pressure and stuff, I just, uh, I dread that. But yeah, that's one I would, I would bow out of if I had a choice. I had my share. And then, so another, (laughs) so another place we would go to a lot is Edwards air force base spent many, many, many days, months in Edwards air at Edwards air force base. In Lancaster, we stayed there um, in Lancaster um, for months sometimes because the wind for takeoff, it's for takeoff and landing performance. Okay. So I would sit up like we'd go there before the sun came up because this, as the sun comes up is in the morning is the calmest air there. And so for takeoff and landing performance, you have to have less than 10 knots of headwind, uh, 10 knot cross, less than 10 knots of crosswind, I believe. But anyway, so um, so we get up there in the dark and we had to get driver's licenses for Edwards Air Force Base. So we'd have to get there a day or two ahead of everybody, make sure we had our licenses, our ramp passes and blah, blah, blah. Our you, photo you have, to, you have to take a separate test to get a driver's license within the base? Yep, yep. And we had to have specific... Um, we have to sign photo uh, for photo badges on the base since they had secret stuff going on. We had to have we had to be told over and over and over again that anything you see you you shouldn't look, uh, take pictures of. Okay. You are allowed to take photos of your airplane. That's it. And if you're caught taking pictures of other things, then you can get your fa- your permit taken away for for life. Or, and they'll take your camera and your blah, blah, blah. You'll be in big trouble. Did anyone ever oh, yes. test it? Yeah. <laughs> yes. was, it you? was it you? Never me. Never okay. me. I was very good. I would, uh, so there was this other PR guy that was there and he would get in my way and I would yell at him and uh, to get out of the way. And he w- took pictures of some fighter that was taken off and he got his camera taken away and the film taken away and yeah, but he got a slap on the wrist basically, but you know, he's, ah, but yeah. I knew the rules. I kept to the rules. And sometimes they would come out there and sit by you. The military police, if something was being tested, they would sit by you and make sure you didn't use your camera or what the first time I ever went to Edwards, they said, look at this in this building. Do not look at it. Do not aim your camera at it. And I said, okay. And that was, I think that was a B2. It was all really interesting. And then we did, they, we did chase with fuel jettison testing. They do mm-hmm. do those testing over unpopulated areas where they, again, they have used the Bonami and they make sure that the fuel, when they jettison it, because in emergency cases, people, some planes, they'll have to jettison because they can't land heavy. So, um, they make sure that none of the fuel impinges on the wing or the, um, you know, anywhere. Yeah, near the engines. Yeah. So we do chase and they do all sorts of different um, turns and uh, make the plane do all sorts of different things. So we videotape from the um, chase plane the, the plume of the, um, we're below it. The fuel uh, coming out? Yep, the fuel coming out. That's and cool. Plus we, have, we install cameras on, on board to watch it as well and a still photographer is on board taking stills so do you are were you able to keep any of that footage or does that all stay with boeing it stays with boeing i don't have any you don't have any stills of any of your time there or anything Mm, 
of the actual no. work in progress? No, that's all. You know, all the stuff that we ever shoot is for the engineers and it goes into our library. So that's, and it's, you know, you don't want any of that stuff getting out. Right. So, uh, so yeah. for your eyes only, some of the, a lot of this yep. stuff. That's yes. cool. Yes. And one time when they had, um, it was on the 787, I had to go down to, it was right before Thanksgiving, an emergency. I had to go to, um, where was it? Right by the Mexican border. I forget the name of the place. Laredo. That's where I was, Laredo, okay. Texas. Anyway, so <clears throat> we had to, they chartered a small little plane to take us down there at like seven o'clock at night. I got a call. Nobody, there's about four other people and nobody was, you know, cause it's right before Thanksgiving. Nobody was answering their phone and I answered my phone and my supervisor said, Hey, you know, we got an emergency. Can you go down there and I, just for a couple of days, Debbie? And so I packed up and went and, uh, I had to shot, shoot stills and everything was, um, you know, I couldn't, I had to put it on a uh, encrypt, encrypted site and nobody else could have them, the pictures at all, just on this encrypted site. So I went down there thinking only a couple of days, I was down there for two weeks and got home just in time, a few days before Thanksgiving and uh, had to cook and everything. But yeah, and the, that was that year that was the year that it snowed really heavy around here around Thanksgiving. And so, yeah, so... You know, and that's the what nature of our work too. I mean, we had to go where there was, you know, and we had to be there. You know, if we knew a test was coming up, we were, you know, you stayed on it until it was done usually. And if it took you through the weekend, whatever, or late at night, like um, slide slide deployment tests and stuff, and you know, you just did it whenever. And also noise testing, they did this in Glasgow. They put a huge um, array of microphones on the end of the runway. And so they'd fly the plane over it low and uh, get uh, have a noise testing, you know, for engine noise and stuff like that. Right. So we would, I mean, they would, and they could do that in the middle of the night or whenever the weather was calm. It had to be, a lot of our testing on the ground and stuff had to have calm winds and stuff. So they would do it whenever. And so you'd be on call to do, you know, you know, be there. That's so, interesting. Yeah. Anytime, yeah. all the time. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, Well, I'm looking at the time and I think we should maybe move toward wrapping up, but I want want to ask if there's anything else you want to talk about that you didn't, because we talked a lot about your work and your roller skating, but is there anything you didn't get to that you wanted to? Um, Just that, you know, and my mom, she's, um, she's almost 96 in a couple months. Oh, wow. I didn't realize she was still... With, yep. you, with you that's yep. awesome yep she's still there and she was she's the glue in our family you know now the everything comes to me because you know to remember the holidays high holidays and everything i have to tell remind people about uh, you know hanukkah and yom kippur and rosh hashanah and stuff because she was the one that always made sure but he remembered and she when we were growing up she lit the candles on the sabbath and tried to you know follow the Jewish faith and make sure we all went to Sunday school. And when I had my son, I made sure I was sent him to Sunday school and he had a bar mitzvah and everything. And so um, she's really the glue. And, and so, and she used to come over to our house every weekend, almost for years. She, I would pick her up cause she, you know, she lived by herself most of the time um, by herself. So we'd pick her up and keep her for every weekend, almost for years and years and years. And then once she started, you know, my sister, uh, lived with her for a while, but then she started, you know, needing more attention. So we have this, she's in a family home now. So, which is very good and very good to her. We're very lucky to find that, but we just, you know, she's just something else. And I, you know, I just miss her having, being around here and, yeah. Have you it's not been good. able to see her at all since oh my gosh. quarantine? COVID and stuff. Ugh. And is she? Does she understand why that is? Is she? Sometimes, well, not really. I don't think she does. Well, her, you know, she's getting dementia. Yeah. You know, can't remember things, but she does remember her prayers. She remember we say 
the Shema with her every time we see her. And we dance and John dances and she, she recognizes John. And oh, that's great. Happy to see him and stuff. But she, you know, she doesn't like for holding the phone. We, we see her through a window and she holds the phone. And she says, whose phone is this, Debbie? You know, like, you know, she doesn't know exactly what's going on. Yeah. And how come you can't come in? You know, we tell her there's a virus going on. Oh, yeah, the virus. You know, That's so, so hard. That's yeah. so, I, I have a few friends who have parents with dementia mm-hmm. and, and they're having to stay totally oh, separate and just I don't know. understand why and probably have to relearn it every day. You know, they yep. have to be told again every single day, here's what's going on. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly it. But then, you know, and my grandkids too. And my son said, when we went and saw them, she said, and one of the grandkids, I think Ellie, she says, I just miss hugging them. You know, yeah, so, I guess that's what my mom says. She's just mm-hmm. like, I just want a hug from my I family. Know. That's all I care about. Like, I know we're really a huggy, loving family. You know, we hug each other a lot. My mom always told us she loved us every day, every night. You know, that's amazing. All the time. And she would always tell us, say your prayers and have happy dreams every night. And I, that's what I passed to my son. And we're just like that. You know, you hug each other and you kiss each other. And, yeah. You know, that's it. That's the way you're supposed to be. So that's what we do, you know. And now that you can't do that, you know, it's it's really hard. Yeah, it feels like a loss to be because I'm I'm a hugger too, and I even you know with all my friends and everything. Um, yeah, exactly. And I, it's weird to not be able to even have that little minimal mm-hmm. contact. I know, right? I know. So anyway, that's all I wanted to add. Cool. Well, I'm glad she's still with us and. Yeah. Uh, you have at least some kind of contact. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 hard to go down there. She lives she's in Kent, we're, you know, North Seattle area. So, you know, it takes almost an hour to get there and then you only get to see her for a few, you know, 15 minutes, but it's really worth it. But you can see that she's diminishing, you know. And, you know, you just wonder if she'll make it to her 96th birthday or whatever, but we were hoping that if, you know, if we have any type of clue that she's on her way out that we would bring her here so that her family can be around her in her final days. That's, you know, yeah. I mean, she was all about family. She didn't have a lot of close friends that she hung out with. Uh, she, it was just her family. That was her whole thing. So that's what we're hoping to give her on her way out. You know? Yeah. I think that's the best thing. If, if that's what the person wants, that's yeah. Yeah. That would be be the most to her. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, thanks so much for for sharing all this stuff. You're welcome. Talking openly. I hope your nervousness went away. Yeah, it did. It did, but I hope it didn't. I hope you won't have to edit a bunch of barking out and all that. Just just John's barking. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'll I'll find a way to work around it and uh, (laughs) make make some music to to put in its place. Oh, good. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. and your music is beautiful i just oh my gosh oh thanks so much mm, it's amazing i really i mean oh my gosh I, I can listen to it for hours because it's just so soothing and it just is comforting oh that's great it, it thank really you is. <laughs> even even the weird like sort of raucous electric ones they don't yeah no okay. perfect Glad I haven't heard those yet. Mm-hmm. well thanks so much i appreciate it oh yeah i know your voice, well, it's your voice too, Justin. It just comes over. It's just very calming. It's good. To, it's easy to listen to, and you know, yeah. Thank you. Know, you. you know the right questions to ask too. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I'm I'm honored that uh, people are willing to talk openly with me. I feel really lucky to have that role. Um, it's very easy to do <laughs> with you talking, uh, helping you through, helping somebody through it. You know, it helps to have someone that's you know easy to talk to. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> it's it's ironic because I you know I always hated my own voice when I heard it. Oh, I know. Recordings and and I always feel self conscious about myself and how I'm presenting and all that stuff. But then. When it when I'm just engaged with another person, all that stuff goes away. I'm not right. I don't exactly. care. Yeah, yeah. So, well, thanks for being that person today. Oh, thanks, honey. We'll it's great you. talking to you. Great talking to you too, for sure. <laughs> and um, yeah, we'll, I'll see you soon on Zoom. Okay. 
Yeah. Mine too. All right. Well, thank, thanks so much, Debbie. I really, okay, it was great talking to you. Okay. Love you, hun. Love you too. Bye. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening everybody hope you enjoyed um that's my friend debbie and her husband john in the background uh who will be on the next episode uh so stay tuned for that and if you want to go back and listen to our friend aaron uh our mutual friend he's been on it twice number one and number 40 and my brother too He's been on it. He has a two-parter somewhere back there in the mid-80s. So go check those out if you wish. And uh, I want to say thank you to Debbie. Thank you to um, my patrons. Debbie also became a patron before even being a guest, which is pretty darn nice of her. Uh, If you want to do that yourself or go check it out, you can do so at patreon.com slash outspokenpodcast. And I am going to be changing the name of the podcast soon because somebody, uh, somebody's encroaching on my podcast airwave territory by using the same name and uh, uh, same logo in one instance, very similar logo. But uh, anyway, I'm going to change the name soon after number 100, get ready. And that means I'll be changing the address of things too, so it might be a pain, but I'll keep you apprised. So thanks again. Oh, and over at Patreon, it's a membership thing. If you want to give a little dough for the different levels, uh, I will give you something back in the form of artwork or music or merchandise. And there's more of each of those coming soon. So, you know, dang, if you want to, it would be very helpful. And I hope you're all doing well. The world is a weird place now, but we can each only control what's in our own lives, I think, and then try to be a good example for others, which is what I'm trying to do, and sometimes succeeding. And thank you to people like Debbie who bring the bring the amplification of love and kindness up, and uh, it, it's, it helps others greatly. So... I aim to do the same for others, and uh, I'll be trying, be working on it. All right, thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye.